rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton. Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number four of Superman in the Bronze Age. I am your host, Charlie E. Meyer, and uh, before we get into the main part of the show, I would just like to announce the beginning of a new network on the internet called the Superman Podcast Network, and Superman in the Bronze Age is proud to be a charter member of this group. Uh, you can find it at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. And basically what this is, is your one-stop shop for all Superman-related podcasts currently available on the Internet. Uh, the ones available currently are uh, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, Pendant Audio, which actually does uh, audio dramas for Superman and Supergirl, the Superman Fan Podcast, hosted by Billy Hogan, Superman Forever Radio, hosted by J. David Weeder, uh, Superman Homepage, of course, run by Steve Eunice, Superman in the Bronze Age, which of course is my podcast, and the Superman Video Podcast, which at this point I really haven't had a chance to check out yet, but I am very anxious to do so. Uh, I do know that there's one or two more podcasts coming down the pike that will soon be added to the show starting in the new year, so I really look forward to that. But um, just to let you know, we have the website has opened. Uh, in fact, the latest episode of the Superman Fan Podcast has already been posted, uh, which is episode number 156 about the Supermobile. So if you would like to go to that site, again, that's www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network. Uh, that's your one-stop shop for everything Superman in the podcast world. And uh, next we're going to go on to the emails. I only got one email in response to episode two, uh, but um, I thank you for it. It's uh, written by Michael Bradley. So he writes, hey, Charlie, I just finished the second episode. Another good output. It seems you're getting your footing pretty quickly. I own the first story you covered because I, it was reprinted in the Superman versus the Flash trade. So it was nice to be able to follow along. And um, before I keep going, I did fail to mention, and I am sorry, um, all of the Action Comics issues I have been covering up to this point and including the next few episodes have not been reprinted anywhere. However, the two uh, issues I covered of World's Finest involving the race against between Flash and Superman were both reprinted in the Superman vs. the Flash trade, which Michael has mentioned. Um, I think they may have been printed in a couple other places. Um, I'm not sure, but I did fail to mention that, and I apologize. And in the future, in fact, starting with this episode, I hope to remember, well, hope to remember, but I do plan on telling you where you can also find reprints of these issues uh, to save you some money, because at this point, 19, the issues from 1970 to like 72 are pretty expensive and hard to get for a cheap price. Uh, you got to remember these are, issues are, wow, 40 years old. So it does make it a little tougher to does make it a little tougher to get them. Uh, but continuing back with Michael's email, um, I disagree with you about Dick Dillon's work. He's no Kurt Swan, but I don't like him or don't dislike him as much as you do. Really, it's just a matter of taste, I think. I do agree the S looks pretty rough in this story, though. 
Judging from his work on Justice League of America, Dylan is one of the artists that never quite got his hooks into that difficult shape. And yes, um, I understand that there's going to be differing opinion. That's fine. I just it is again opinion. So everyone's entitled to their own opinion. So I, I you do agree with me about the shape of the S. So that's fine. But uh, and yes, he is no Kurt Swan. He's not at least in those issues. Like I said, he's not a not, the artwork doesn't look bad. It, in my opinion, it get it doesn't get any better. It actually gets a little worse. But if you like it, more power to you. And um, he continues. As for the questions you put forth toward the end of the episode, I would like you to cover at least briefly the direct occurrence page and other books out at the same time. For me, it helps put things in context, knowing what else was going on in the DC at the time. Okay. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, since you were the only one that actually, like I said, mentioned anything about that, I will go ahead and until I get um, a whole bunch of people telling me not to, I will go ahead and mention what else is going on in D.C. at the time, uh, which I will do at the end of the episodes, which uh, starting today. And uh, actually, I will cover what happened in the last two months to help you get your context. And um, so I want to thank you for writing in. And actually, um, I don't know if, if I mentioned it on episode two or three, but um, the website is, or the podcast is now available on iTunes uh, for free subscription and free downloads. And lo and behold, I've actually got a couple of reviews, so I wanted to read those on the air real quick. Uh, the first review is by a user named Garrick McKnighter. It was written on December 2nd. It, it says, great show. If you like Bronze Age Superman, then this is the podcast for you. Charlie has an easygoing style and makes the show a joy and a uh, and makes the show a joy to listen to. There are very few Superman podcasts out there, and thankfully, Charlie stepped forward to fill this void. If you enjoy From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, then this is a perfect companion to that show. And even if you don't, you should listen to this cast anyway. Well, thank you, Garrick McKnighter. Um, I like to think that I have an easygoing style. I am the easygoing kind of guy, so that I'm glad it's coming out in the podcast. We have the second one. And both, by the way, both of these are five-star reviews, which, <laughs> that is awesome. But um, the second one is actually written by Dave David Weeder, who I mentioned before is uh, does the Superman fan radio podcast. No, he doesn't. He does Superman Forever radio podcast. And he writes, this show covers a unique era in Superman's history. Charlie covers it well, pr proving that he has a great grip on Superman and knows what he's talking about. I will listen every week. Well, thank you, J. David Weeder. I would like to say um, he, the Superman Forever radio cast is a really good show. Uh, he started off with one kind of format, covering all the news and all different eras of Superman. And while he's still covering the current news on Superman, he's decided that because From Crisis to Crisis covers the era from, uh, from Crisis on Infinite Earths to Infinite Crisis, and since my show is covering the Bronze Age Superman, uh, he's decided what he's going to do is cover the post-Infinite Crisis era of Superman. So starting in, I believe, episode 5 or 6, and I'm sorry, um, I listened to him at the same time, so it's hard to remember, but um, listening uh episode 5 or 6, he actually starts the Up, Up, and Away saga, uh, running through the Superman books with the One Year Later banner. And um, so I'm glad... Uh, I'm glad he likes my show, and I only have 24 minutes of battery remaining, so i got to plug this in. So, moving right along, we're going to start off with a bold new era in Superman, 
because we are finally getting into the Superman comic. Um, as you recall, the last few issues or episodes have been following action and world's finest because Mort Weisinger was still cut, was still editing Superman at the time. But today, this issue is the famous issue 233 of Superman, dated January 1971, uh, for 15 cents. It was released on November 5th, 1970, with a cover by Neil Adams. And um, again, it's one of those weird images where, I mean, it's a powerful image, but somehow Superman has just apparently taken a big breath and was able to use just his chest to break some chains. Because um, the arms are not in there, so I've never quite understood how he could do that, but whatever. And um, the chains are colored green to signify that this is the issue where kryptonite goes away for a while. And in fact, it says at the bottom of the page, kryptonite nevermore. And uh, I actually read somewhere, uh, actually I think it was in Krypton Chronicles, that Neil Adams, if he knew that this was going to be such an important cover to people and such an important issue, he would have done a better job on the cover. He's not really a fan of this cover. And I'm sitting here looking at this, and I've got I've got this one cover in about three different versions. I've got I've got it reprinted in the Kryptonite Nevermore hardcover. Um I've got it in a CBR format. And um I've also got it in my long box, um, the original issue. And it's one of my prized possessions, which is why I'm not using it to review this, because just, uh, shortly before he died, I was able to get uh, Julie Schwartz to actually autograph it for me. He, I believe he signed it on the inside to Charlie from Julie Schwartz. And um, uh, it's one of those rare, rare events that um, I was really proud to be able to get his autograph. Uh, I actually... When they announced that he was getting ready to sign at the Baltimore Comic Con, I knew I wanted to get there and get some uh, get this particular issue signed. And when I showed up, um, I was able to get be first in line, and I handed him the issue. And he really didn't talk to me too much. Uh, he had an assistant with him, who, as soon as he saw the issue, he started telling him how he got Denny O'Neill to to do the story and that he and he did ask me my name and he called me, you know, he said my name to me. And, but, um, so I actually have a Julie Schwartz story. Uh, most people have it from working with him. I got it because he signed a comic book for me. So, um, unfortunately he died. I think this was, I want to say this was September of 03 when he signed it, maybe 02. Um, I do know he died early 2004, I believe it was. So, on one hand, I was very fortunate to have met him when I did, but on the other hand, I do feel bad for all the people that didn't get a chance to meet the guy. He seemed like a really nice guy, very full of energy considering um, he was in his 70s by this by that point. So um, it was a cool experience for me. Uh, back to the story. The title of this issue is called Superman Breaks Loose. The story is by Denny O'Neill. The art is by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and of course the editor is Julie Schwartz. And um, the first issue uh, starts beginning, A Return to Greatness, Superman, an old majesty, and a stunning new tale of thrills, tragedy, and heroism. And um, we start off at a probing grounds in the western United States. Professor Bolden is experimenting with a kryptonite engine to provide cheap electricity for virtually every underdeveloped area in the world. Um, he does activate the engine 
but almost immediately it seems to go out of control. Superman is flying control just to keep an eye on things and sees what sees the trouble. So he quickly grabs a lead shield that he has already uh, prepared for this just in case something like this happened. But before Superman can get it down to cover the kryptonite engine, it explodes and he gets a face full of kryptonite radiation. He's thrown back through the wall and lands and for several minutes he is still and motionless. After a few minutes, um, the doctor, the professor and his associates show, uh, show up. Superman comes too and he does not seem to be injured, just a little shaky as they help him up. Um, a doc, one of the doctors come up and shows him that the kryptonite that they were using has been turned to iron, which doesn't seem to be possible, but it's obviously true because Superman's standing there and the kryptonite is not having any effect on him. So, uh, all of a sudden, another guy shows up um, with some more kryptonite that had been turned to iron, but this, iron, this kryptonite was actually in a vault, which is a considerable distance from the lab. So Superman decides to see if there's any other kryptonite that's been affected. And as we see with the headline for the next day of the Daily Planet, all kryptonite on Earth has been turned to iron. Which, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, Jimmy, and Olsen, Jimmy Olsen and Lois Lane are in the Daily Planet, and they're very excited about this because now that means that the only thing that can hurt Superman is kryptonite. Or, no, obviously not. Uh, but the only thing that can hurt Superman now is magic, and that's really rare. Clark wants to be excited, but... He tries to play it cool just to not arouse any suspicions, even though I don't know how that would arouse anyone. Does that mean Jimmy's excited, or Jimmy's Superman because he's excited? I don't know. But anyway, Morgan Edge comes in, and he's all, he's skeptical about it because he believes in the saying that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And um, he thinks that, he wants to know how Superman could possibly be an exception to this rule. And of course, Ed, uh, Lois and Jimmy give him looks like, you know, idiot. Um, Edge decides that we'll worry about that later and gives Clark a portable television transmitter and tells him that he's going to cover a mail rocket. And Clark at first says, wait a minute, I, I'm a newspaper reporter. He says, you're an employee of mine and you will do what I tell you. If I say you're going to cover for my TV station, you are. Clear? And Clark says he gets the message and he leaves. Of course, he's worried that it's going to complicate things because as a newspaper reporter, he was free to switch identities whenever he needed to. But as a broadcaster, he'd always have to wait for commercial breaks. But anyway, uh, shortly at the landing, at the launching site, he, Clark starts setting up his equipment and appears to be the only newsman on site, which is weird. Um, during the report, his x-ray vision does reveal that there is a man a suspicious-looking man uh, talking with a walkie-talkie, which begs the question. I mean, he's standing there doing the news, and he's using And for some reason, he's just decided, oh, I'm going to use my X-ray vision over here, and just happens to spot the guy behind a corner. That's that's a little weird. It's, I, in fact, what I wrote on my note is, is he always looking for trouble? But anyway, uh, he finally gets to... Take, put the newscast to commercial and he figures he has about three minutes to try to figure out what's going on so he real quick changes to Superman uh, goes up to the guy uh, who is relaying some sort of information about the rocket getting ready to launch over the walkie-talkie 
the man reveals that he and his buddies are going to be hijacking that nail rocket, but he doesn't mind telling him that because he's got a box full of kryptonite. And, of course, Superman shocks the, shocks the guy because he takes it. And in the most famous, probably one of the most famous Superman scenes ever in a comic before up until his death, takes the piece of kryptonite and actually eats it. And the only thing he really says that's bad is um, it's a little stale and could use a bit of salt. This, of course, shocks the would-be hijacker, and Superman knocks him back with a little flick to the chin and switches back to Clark real quick to cover the actual launch. And fortunately, the launch kicks up enough smoke and dust to cover him switching back to Superman as he sends the report over to their Los Angeles offices, where I guess they'll be covering the landing of the mail rocket, uh, which I didn't mention, and I apologize, but this mail rocket is supposed to be a quicker way to get mail coast to coast. So it's launching in Metropolis, and it's supposed to be landing in Los Angeles on the West Coast. Anyway, Superman takes off and follows the rocket and sees two jets set on an intercept course. He attempts he flies up to the first one and attempts to fuse the jet uh, electrical system with his heat vision, but for some reason uh, his heat vision won't penetrate the hull. Not letting that get to him, though, uh, Superman rips open a hole in the jet and um, knocks out the hijackers real quick and sets the pilot the automatic pilot on a downward glide. He then exits that plane and heads to the second jet. And this time, because uh, crook catching can get dull if you do the same things over and over, he uses his x-ray vision to spot the pilots and punches through the hull into, and hits their heads, knocking them out. He then grabs both planes and flies them towards the Metropolis airfield. However, by this point, he's, again, I guess, over the western United States, and uh, he's over where the, the place where the kryptonite ex, uh, engine explosion was, and suddenly finds himself getting really weak, and a weakness that's even worse than the effects of kryptonite. But he gets over it real quick and chalks it up to, the ling to lingering kryptonite radiation. The next day at the Daily Planet City Room, Morgan Edge assigns Clark Kent to the TV division because he liked the way he handled himself. Perry tries to say, uh, now wait here, I need Kent, but Edge quickly puts him down and says that while White, excuse me, while Perry White might be the editor, he's the boss, and what he says goes. And meanwhile, in the desert uh, near the probing grounds, uh, a creature of sand rises up from the imprint that Superman left when he landed there. Uh, it has Superman's form, and it slowly rises, and looks like it's. The sand is actually falling away from him, and he slowly walks away, moving slowly and relentlessly to a terrible destiny. And the next issue is explosive action as Superman shows how to tame a wild volcano. Now, I do have a few notes on this issue. Um, first of all, the beginning part of the story says it's a return to greatness, which makes you wonder. I know... I don't know how much of this is Julie Schwartz and how much of this Denny O'Neill, but I know Julie Schwartz was a big, was a good friend to Mort Weisinger, and as part of the and as um, and as such, was trying not to showcase Superman too much in the um, Justice League at the time um, during the Silver Age, just because of the fact that you know Superman was Mort's character. 
but it just I just find it funny that apparently Superman wasn't great before this before things switched over. It just I, don't know, I feel I don't know how that how I'm supposed to take that, but I mean it is a great story. Don't get me wrong, and um, I do like this story a lot better than most of the Golden Age or well Golden Age most of the Silver Age stuff that I've read. But I just find it funny that they would say it's a return to greatness. Um, the opening text on this page, on the opening splash page, also indicates something. Um, let me just read it to you real quick. It says, invulnerability, strength, speed, all these things and many more combined to make Superman the most powerful being on Earth. But there is another side to the Man of Steel, a dark side, hidden from both the crowds of admirers and the evil men who hate and fear him. Superman breaks loose. Now the reason I noted that is because that sounds very ominous and none of that is seen in this issue. Superman doesn't act any different today in this issue than he does any other time that we see him other than the fact that he doesn't have to worry about kryptonite and he gets weak when he flies over the probing grounds. Beyond that, I don't know why they have all that ominous stuff when you don't see any of that in this issue, but that may just be me. Um, also, I'm thinking, now maybe this is Superman volunteering to do this, but personally, I would think a guy with super intelligence like him and these professors um, have must be smart to be able to come up with a kryptonite engine, that um, since they're in the western United States, wouldn't it have been better maybe to get you know Green Lantern to watch over in case something goes wrong, rather than the guy who's who can be killed just by the mere presence of kryptonite? Even if it hadn't exploded, I mean, I wonder if kryptonite electricity could actually weaken Superman. But, so, I just don't think that was really smart of me. Granted, it wouldn't be a Superman issue if you did that. It would be a Green Lantern story. But I just think it would, would have been smarter to maybe have Green Lantern cover this rather, or even Flash. Flash is in the Midwest. He's closer than Metropolis. Central City's closer than Metropolis would be. But whatever. Um, um, now the, some of the art I have problem uh, now. Okay, the art in this issue is fantastic. It's Murphy. It, Murphy. It's Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson at their best. However, there is a few things I have a problem with. Now, number one, both of the scenes that take place in the city room. The only people you see in the city room are Lois, Clark, and Jimmy. Perry White comes in out of his office at the end of the story. Morgan Edge walks in from out of nowhere uh, at, the, at both parts of the story. But we really only see those three people. So that means that the Daily... Well, so my question is, does the Daily Planet only have like four people working for it? That seems a little weird. And that's something that actually happens a few times in this issue, as I pointed out. Um, once Clark gets to the launch site... He seems to be the only member of the news media covering the thing. I, there is a tanker truck you see there, which I'm guessing is for the fuel, and you see some workers, but Superman's the only one, or Superman, Clark is the only one that you see setting up a news camera, and I would think something like this, um, I know in real life, at least today, you'd have a whole section with nothing but news media, and they'd have to do their best to try to make sure they're not catching other news media talking and reporting on the story at the same time that they're trying to talk about it. But Clark didn't have to worry about that because I guess news was a little different in the 70s. Let's see, what else did I notice? 
I have been to the Kennedy Space Center several times, and I know this isn't the Kennedy Space Center, but I would imagine if they're launching a quote-unquote space rocket that it, they would have some of the same security measures in place. Whenever I've been to the Kennedy Space Center, the watching area for launches of, the sh of shuttles, rockets, what have you, is quite a ways away from the actual launch site. And a place where you can see it, but a place where the smoke from the launch and everything is not going to be, you know, covering you. And if it does, it's going to take a long time and a strong wind to get it to you. Clark apparently is like 10 feet away from this thing. No one would be that close in real life. I don't care if it's 1970, 1950, or, or 2020. You're not going to be that close unless you are Superman in Superman uniform. You're not going to be that close to the rocket launch. Having said that, like I said, the art looks really good. Um, the only, uh, actually, the, there wasn't only a couple places I had a note note about things. Um, on page five, when you see Clark turn around, for some reason it, um, well, Lois and Jimmy look like Swanderson work, but that picture of Clark from the back angle kind of reminds me of a Jerry Ordway kind of Superman or Clark from the back. And then when we're on page 7 and he's spotting the uh, guy hiding out around the corner with his x-ray vision, um, it looks like a Carrie Gamille Superman to me. And that's one of the things that first popped in my head every time I've seen this issue. Um, it just, I mean, I'm not, obviously I'm not saying that those two came in and had to cover up some art because obviously they weren't in doing this at that point. But I just think it's pretty interesting. You can see some of the influences that they might have had that those two artists might have had when you can see art that looks similar to theirs in one of these older books uh, the scene where Superman eats the kryptonite I love this scene uh, one it's it's funny you don't often get that much actual humor in a pre-crisis Superman book um, second the art is awesome when you see okay the third panel of him eating you see, you can see the lump on his cheek from where he's chewing it. You can see the his the way the wrinkles around his mouth where he's trying to keep his mouth closed while he's chewing it, meaning he's got good manners. Um, the detail and everything in this just looks phenomenal. Kurt Swan, you did a good job on this. Um, I, another note I have is the fact that in this issue, Clark is actually wearing different suits and entire outfits. The first one is a nice looking brown suit with some pretty detailed shoes from what I can see and a nice blue shirt with some stripes on it and a blank white tie. And at the end, although technically the suit at the end could have been drawn as his regular suit and they just decided to color it differently, but he's got a, looks like a weird color combination though, but it is 1970 so who knows, but I mean Morgan Edge is wearing a purple suit. But um, you got Clark wearing an orange suit with a green shirt and a dark orange tie again he's got a brown hat to go with it so it all works together but um, that one actually looks like Swan may have been drawing a, reg a regular suit and they just colored it differently it's hard to tell but um, the only problem I had with the art though other than the lack of people is um, on page 13 when Superman gets weak all of a sudden now I know when you're weak you don't look your best and uh, when you feel sick, you don't look your best. But in this image, it looks like he ages like 30 years 
in one panel. It's kind of, I mean, he's got all these wrinkles on his forehead, which is probably just him going, you know, raising his eyebrows a little, but the way they're drawn, they look like wrinkles, and suddenly all his face looks really sunken in. He just looks a lot older in that one panel than in the rest of the book. Um, it's not really anything that can be fixed or anything, or something, I mean, it does indicate that something's wrong with him. Um, also on the last, on page 14, not the last page yet, um, I do like the way um, Morgan Edge's style changes in the course of the issue. In the, and when we see him at the beginning of the issue, um, he does have his hair combed to the side, but it's um, most of it is kind of falling down, kind of almost looks just like he just combed it to the side and let it go. At the end of the story, it looks a little more, uh, how do you want to say it, primped? print um, but yeah he's got it it's still combed to the side but this time he has the um, end of it you know kind of combed up kind of a more of a uh, brush up thing I don't know it just looks like he took more care of it at the end of the issue um, and then the final page where we see the the sand creature uh, crawling up from the ground and walking off um, I like the way it's colored by the way the coloring in this issue and I notice it as soon as we get to the next issue and the ones following it um, that the coloring isn't quite as good, but it's like they knew this was going to be a special issue, so they wanted to color it. Looks like more time and effort was put into the coloring of this issue than any of the rest of the issues, at least in this storyline. Um, but when we see the sand creature walk off from the back, the effects that they use, um, I mean, well, I don't know, it's not really effects that they use, it's just the way Swan and Anderson drew it, but the cape on him is actually moving to go with his legs. The the cape is far enough down that it goes to about his knees, maybe, uh, maybe a little further down. So when he's walking, you actually see it drape around his leg, and the way it's colored gives it more of a three-dimensional look to it, and it looks really awesome. Um, so that's that's it for the main story of the book. And uh, next, we're going to go into a backup feature. And this issue is also start, sees the beginning of a new backup feature called The Fabulous World of Krypton, Untold Stories of Superman's Native Planet. And the first entry into this uh, backup feature is Jor-El's Golden Folly, written by E. Nelson Bridwell, who is, the, who is also was known as the walking encyclopedia of Superman. And Murphy Anderson, who apparently was not busy enough inking both the Superman issue and the action comics issue that we'll be covering in a minute, but also gets to draw a nine-page backup story. Um, we start off, uh, super, uh, we see the Jorels playing a memory tape, and we learn that in his last, it was his final session at the memory center, which from the looks of it appears to either be a high school or college, I'm not completely sure, but um, uh, it's his final days at the memory center, and the analyzer beam decides that uh, Jor-El is qualified to be to go to the Kryptonopolis space complex. And at the complex, he meets a Professor Kendall and military commander General Drew Zod. Yes, that is General Zod, uh, who we will see more about later. But here, he doesn't really play an important part of the story. Anyway, Kendall shows him around the space complex and uh, shows Jarrell around, including uh, showing him a ship that is currently being built to be sent to Weg, Weg 4, which um, I actually had to look up because they don't explain it here, which they usually do. But um, Weg 4 
I believe is how you pronounce it, is actually one of uh, Krypton's three moons, and it's apparently the principal one. Um, at some point, there will be colonies set up on this moon, because it turns out that in the low terrain areas, there is a thin atmosphere that would allow the Kryptonians to survive on that moon. So, but of course, this is before they got to set all that stuff up, and uh, apparently at this point, uh, Kendall mentions that they that they are trying to set up a observatory on Wegthor, but uh, the Science Council just recently cut their funding, so that's going to be a little more difficult to do. Uh, then he takes him to show, um, takes him to see the astronauts in training, which they call the Space Flyers, and uh, one of them is of course Lara Lorvan, who goes on to of course become Superman's mom. And while it's not explained here, we do find out that uh, only women are allowed to be astronauts on Krypton. Not sure why, but um, maybe that will be explained in a future Fabulous World of Krypton story. So after all this, uh, Jor-El goes off on his own and begins experimenting with anti-gravity. And in just 65 days, which if the Superman movie is indication, they're 28-hour days, so it's a little longer than what you would have on Earth, but... Still, just 65 days, he, prefer, he perfects an anti-gravity belt. And uh, he shows it off to Kendall and General Zod, and they approve funding for him to create an anti-gravity drive, which he decides he's going to use for a space vehicle. However, but more budget cuts from the Science Council require him to use gold, which on Krypton is actually a one of the more... It's a, most common element on Krypton, so therefore it's also the cheapest. So here, gold is very expensive, and because we don't have too much on it, but on Krypton, it's seen as nothing more than like, I don't know, copper is on Earth, or not even copper is on, I don't know, iron would be on Earth. So they make a ship out of this, and everyone is laughing at them, thinking there's no way this is going to work, because for one, gold is too heavy to fly, and two, it's too soft and the air friction will melt it. But based on Jorel's findings, his anti-grav drive will not only lift it and get it to space, but will also eliminate the friction it would come up against when it's re-entering the atmosphere so it won't melt. And of course they call this Jorel's Golden Folly, and my wife would love this part because she loves it when a movie actually uses the title of the um, when there's a line in a movie or TV show that actually uses the episode or movie title in it. Like, oh, I don't know, uh, for an example, Superman Returns. At some at a, at a point um, during one of the office meetings, Perry White actually utters Superman Returns. And, of course, my wife loved that part because she likes it when they do that. And they do that a lot on um, TV shows, too, like Two and a Half Men. They always have a weird title, and you don't know why, but eventually at some point in the episode, the title comes out in someone's dialogue, and she thinks that's really cool, too. So, hi, honey. So, page, uh, we're still on page, and uh, all of this has happened, and we're only on page three of the story. So, that's how much writing we're getting. I mean, this, there's a lot, of cram, a lot of stuff crammed into this. Um, so, Laura volunteers that she wants to be a pilot. But um, Jor-El declines, saying that the first flight has to be remote controlled to make sure, you know, everything's safe. So next day, or a few days later, on the date 30 Ogtal, so Jor-El launches the ship, and suddenly Lara 
comes in over the communicator, stating that she uh, she snuck aboard to look around and she, guess she forgot the time. But um, now she's on the ship, so now she's going to have to try the controls if things go bad, which means she's going to get what she wanted to try to test fly the ship. But unfortunately, in the upper atmosphere away from Krypton's gravity, Jarrell's anti-grav um, system is suddenly uh, kind of goes bonkers and is repelled because it's instead of just getting Krypton's gravity, which where it would work fine, this would be a great, you know, plane type of thing, uh, air traffic or something. Turns out when you go into space, it's being repelled by the gravity of di several different quote-unquote celestial bodies and is very hard to maneuver. But working together, Jor-El and Lara finally get the uh, ship to land on Wegthor. But when it does, communication is lost causing Jarrell to go into a panic because he doesn't know if, if Lara survived or not. But um, it turns out that the rocket ship from earlier that's supposed to go to Wegthor is going to be launching in three days. So Jarrell can't, you know, just sit by and wait and see what happens. So using one of his anti-grav belts and somehow getting his hands on a spacesuit with an oxygen tank, um, he stows away on the ship headed for Wegthor and by not breathing any of the ship's oxygen, because he's got the oxygen tank on the suit, and by not actually touching anything, therefore not causing or putting any more weight in the ship and ruining the calculations for fuel and everything, um, Jorel is able to sneak sneak away on this ship headed for Wegthor. Now, it takes a day and seven kolus, which there is a footnote that says that a kolu is there's 10,000 Earth seconds with which some, with some quick math I was able to figure out it's going to be about 19 and a half Earth hours. So it takes about one day and 19 and a half hours for this ship to get from Krypton to Wegthor, which is pretty quick considering it takes like three or four days for, uh, or it used to take three or four days for one of the Apollo missions to get from Florida to moon to the, to the moon. But the problem I have with that is that Lara got there in what seemed like 10 20 minutes tops maybe but it takes a, like almost two days for this ship to get there just seems a little weird I guess the anti-gravity also increases the speed that they can travel which means I don't know how Lara was able to move um, while she was flying on the ship but I don't know it is a backup story so you gotta let it, a couple things slide it is science fiction so keep that in mind um, uh, so Jor-El as it's landing Jor-El is able to sneak off because they don't even know he's there in the first place and um, the lighter gravity actually allows him to make giant leaps and it's actually drawn uh, to look very much like the kind of leaps uh, you would see Superman make in some of the early Golden Age tales when he could only leap an eighth of a mile so that's pre that is a pretty good, cool throwback. I like that a lot. And um, he eventually finds Lara. She has survived, and she's uh, she escaped from the ship. She head down into the Valley of Gloom, which is pretty dark, and is wearing a, floss, a fluorescent spacesuit, so she's glowing to make it easier for them to find her. So he rescues her, and they hold each other, and... We don't see how exactly they get back to Krypton because I would imagine if they had to worry about how they about getting there, they fact I guess since they fact would have factored in the fact that Lara was going to be coming back with them, um, that would be okay. But 
Jor-El can of course use his anti-gravity belt to float and not mess with the weight or air on the ship on the way home. But um, I did want to read the final caption. Um, Thus Jor-El and Lyra met and fell in love, little guessing what fate had in store for them, for Krypton, and for the sun they would have some they would someday have, Kal-El, to be known on Earth as Superman. So that's a pretty cool ending. Um, we do have um, a couple notes I have on this issue of Jor-El's where Jor-El actually in this issue wears a blue suit and um, if you've been following Superman at all usually he is known to have this green suit on with a giant uh, crest that looks like the sun and sometimes they color it to be a yellow sun with red um, like lines they're supposed to indicate the rays of the sun going around it sometimes it's the sun is red with yellow rays around it but in any event he's got that as his chest symbol and uh, it's usually a green suit with red boots and like not gloves but red wristbands and stuff and this time uh, it's, it looks like it's a similar suit except he doesn't have the chest symbol symbol mm -hmm. the chest emblem but it's colored blue so I guess it's just to show you that this is Superman's dad I don't know, but it looks very much like Superman's super suit, even the way that they shade in the red underwear on the outside part. So it also looks like, um, I believe there was a Silver Age story where somehow we find out that if he had been on Krypton, Kal-El would eventually have become a Superman and would have worn basically his Superman outfit, but the boots were more Kryptonian, with the Kryptonian kind were just regular, goes around, doesn't have the fancy little cowboy boot kind of thing like they do. On Earth, but um, so there you go. That's the first issue of Superman in the Bronze Age, and I think it's a pretty awesome, pretty awesome story. The the, the fabulous world of Krypton could be interesting. Um, I know I've read several of them. Um, the artwork and the writer change constantly. Um, I know several of the ish of the stories are going to be written by Carrie Bates. Some, uh, several more will be written by E. Nelson Bridwell. I believe there's going to be some by like Bob Rosakis once he uh, becomes a DC employee, and uh, several others. And it's going to last for quite a while, but um, it's pretty good. I like um, something that they haven't had a chance to do in the current comics, mostly because um, you know they. They never even did it that much during while Byrne was there. Yes, they had that one uh, World of Krypton miniseries, but outside of the Silver and Bronze Ages, you don't really see too much examination of Krypton before Superman left. You don't see too much of the history about it. Yes, there is that World of, like I just said, there is that World of Krypton miniser uh, miniseries that John Byrne did shortly after he did the reboot. But past that, you really don't see too much more Krypton after that. I mean, yes, you see some flashbacks and stuff. You learn about the Eradicator and all that, but um, you don't see too much, too many flashbacks. Uh, after Infinite Crisis, they didn't even know which Krypton they were going with at first um, until they started doing Secret Origin, so they haven't even had a chance to mess with it too much, uh, although they did know there was going to be a Phantom Zone, obviously, because there's a Phantom Zone story, but again, that's not Krypton. Um, you get New World of Krypton, which um, I'm going to be honest with you. I stopped reading Superman comics when New World of Krypton started. So I don't know how much they might have gone into it with that book uh, or with that series. But um, I know they didn't do 
I know for a fact they didn't do a whole lot of uh, flashbacks to what life was like on Krypton. And we do know, of course, Brainiac took Kandor, uh, as happened in the Silver and Bronze Ages. But um, I do like this. It's a nice examination of the world Superman came from because it's a place ripe for story potential. You get a little bit more science fiction-y stories because you don't really have a superhero aspect to it just because of the fact that, of course, Superman isn't alive, isn't there, and uh, Krypton doesn't really have a superhero. So uh, this is a pretty good science fiction type story, and I do like seeing Jor-El jump around like Superman used to back in the 30s. Um, so what I'm going to do now is stop rambling, and I'm going to do some more promos for you. We've got, uh, got a few more. Um, and uh, well, then we'll come back and we'll cover Action, uh, action Comics. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. Faster than a speeding bullet. Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a journey through the golden age of the Man of Steel in comics, radio, and film. Available at GreatCrypton.com December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star.
The Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. Supermanhomepage.com. And we're back, and um, hope you like those. Um, listening to that Tales of the JSA one, I do have to say, I do want to say something. Um, hey, Scott Gardner, how you doing, buddy? Uh, now I know Scott doesn't usually like that because it freaks him out, so I just wanted to mess with him a little bit. So, hi, Scott. Sorry about that. So anyway, moving on to Action Comics number three ninety six. Um, which again uh, was is has a January seventy one cover date, and of course it was fifteen cents. And this one was released was yeah this one was released on November twenty fifth, nineteen seventy. The cover on this one is by Car- Carmine Infantino and Murphy Anderson, and it's a interesting cover. Um, you see a background that looks like an alien world. It looks actually it looks a lot like um, some of the stuff you'd see of Krypton, believe it or not. And uh, meanwhile, uh, you've got Superman running down a sidewalk being chased by a ton of people uh, wearing some weird outfits, including a dog. And Superman's in a wheelchair, and someone's pulling a sheet or a blanket or something off of him. Now, if you look at the coloring, you do see he's got some gray hair. Uh, The way they do some gray hair in the comic books, of course, the, the way that you see it on, like, Perry White and Reed Richards, is, of course, the white hair just around on the temples and around the ear. So, now my gray hair isn't coming in like that, but whatever. And um, he's dropped a, looks like a coffee cup full of coins, and he's asking everybody why they're hounding him. Have you no pity? I'm not a freak. Leave me alone. And he's got a sign around him that says, Help the Needy. So you got to wonder what's going on here. So I guess this cover would work in that respect. And, of course, there's a the blurb on it says, this is, is this the future for the world's mightiest hero to become one day the super panhandler of Metropolis? So the future, I so you, you start wondering what's going on here. And you see at the very beginning, uh, the caption reads, You are there. In the future, on an imaginary day in the 1990s, 
when folks still listen to the nostalgic Where Are They Now TV program. And by the way, it says listen, but this is a TV program. Uh, as it even says there, they've listened to a TV program. Mm-hmm. Which is pretty cool. I guess they don't really watch the pictures that are being shown in the comic, but yeah, that's what they do. So anyway, um, before I get started, before I get further into the story, uh, let's go to the um, credits here. We have it's the Super Panhandler of Metropolis is the title. The writer is Leo Dorfman. The penciler is Kurt Swan. The inker is Murphy Anderson, and the editor is Murray Boltonoff. And um, I failed to say it again, and I have failed to say it each and every time I've recorded. But Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Although at this point it wasn't required that they put that in each issue. Not That doesn't come up until the set, until about 76. Um, I do want to try to put that in there because without these two gentlemen, we wouldn't have these stories that, we are, that I'm reviewing now. So Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, regardless of what it says in the issue. And anyways... Um, again, it is an imaginary day in 1990, or in the 1990s, sorry. Um, Jimmy, it turns out, is now chief producer of WMET-TV. And we find out that Superman apparently disappeared years ago. And um, Jimmy reveals that when he show, uh, disappeared, so did Clark Kent. So he announces over the airwaves that he suspects that Clark was Superman's secret identity. And he does a flashback to one of the last times he saw Superman. He says that Superman, um, that for a while his friends saw less and less of him, and he just seemed to ignore them. And what we see on this panel is that Superman is showing up to help to, well, there's a bank vault door that has been jammed. And instead of prying it open with the super strength, Superman just uses his heat vision for a minute. Superman, uh, Jimmy asks him, or Superman uses his heat vision to open it. So Jimmy asks him why he uses his heat vision instead of his super strength, and Jimmy was like that. He, or Superman just says he doesn't have time to explain and leaves. And meanwhile, during this interview, we see an older gentleman uh, in a crumpled suit in a wheelchair sitting outside an appliance store. Uh, with some gray hair and dirt, using his dialogue, dude is revealed that this is obviously Superman, and he turns around just to see, and, and we see that he's got a suit on with, it looks like an elbow pad that has been, it almost looks like Spider-Man webbing, but um, obviously it's been patched. He's wearing a blanket over his legs. He's in a wheelchair. Um, he's begging for money, and a gentleman gives him a dime. And his thought balloon shows that he's basically Superman, but in a wheelchair. He's not happy with it. And, of course, this whole thing makes Superman very depressed. And I'm calling him Superman even though he's not wearing an outfit because he's not Clark in this either. He's, well, I guess I could call him Kal-El. But anyway, he's, this whole thing has him very depressed. And I can understand that, where that's not normally a Superman thing, being depressed. I can understand how going from having all these abilities to not being able to walk anymore could cause depression. I do know for a fact that just people that suddenly find themselves paralyzed go through depression because of the fact you know they can't do what they used to do. So this is actually a pretty strong way to look at it. 
pretty, pretty realistic way to look at it. But anyway, as he's rolling along, um, we don't really know where he's going. Um, suddenly a crane up above on a building uh, buckles, dropping tons of steel beams. And by when I say tons, I don't mean there's a hundred beams coming down. I mean they weigh tons. Now, he thinks to himself in the bubble of how he could, and back in the old days, he could just fly up and catch those beams like they were feathers. But we also see that he's not really needed because um, the worker there uses his anti-gravity pulse ray to catch the beams. So even though Superman isn't around, it looks like the people of Earth have come up with ways to work around that and save themselves, which I guess is a good thing for us. Um, and this just seems to be a bad luck charm kind of day for Clark or Superman, whoever you want to look at it, because after that he's will he's still wheeling along and he comes across a bank robbery. And he, just because he's used to it, uh, he goes to his call of duty and tries to run uh, wheel around to catch the crooks. But before he can get too far, a, um, one of the uh, workers inside the bank uh, tap a butt with their feet or with their foot, which causes a glass cage to rise up from the ground and capture the, rob the robbers. Now we find out it's a bulletproof glass and it's sealed on all sides. So I guess my question on that is, uh, one, we do see one of the crooks shooting at it. Um, wouldn't the bouncing bullets in a such enclosed space cause a lot of problems? Number one. Number two, there's not much, I wouldn't think, uh, it's only going to have whatever air is caught, unless they have, maybe they have something underground that's releasing air into there, but it doesn't look like there's going to be much air, so hopefully the police will come get them out of that cage shortly. And anyway, a uh, little, little bit after that, he goes a little bit further and suddenly sees a fuel truck on fire. But before he can do anything to help that, the fire sensors on the nearby lamppost sound an alarm. And the fire department hovercraft shows up and puts out the fire with some foam. which, And they call it a hovercraft, but it looks like an old school helicopter to me. Granted, there's wheels, but it kind of looks like a helicopter the way they, you know, just a regular helicopter, so I don't know why they call it a hovercraft, but that's just me. So he goes on a little bit further and sees a boy chase a ball out into the traffic. And he actually gets there in time to grab the boy and pull him back from the street before he gets hurt. But the kid, instead of thanking him for saving his life, gets mad at him because now the kid just because the kid just lost his ball. Fortunately, some other gentleman, I don't know if it's the driver of the vehicle or a passerby or who, because we don't see anyone else in the area at the time, um, actually gives him $5 because of his bravery. So Superman is very excited about this because for the first time in days, he's able to buy some food. And he goes to the store and does some shopping and then heads home. And we find out that his home is no longer the Fortress of Solitude, which, as it turns out, has been exposed because uh, climate control systems have actually defrosted the Arctic, meaning that instead of looking like a ice, just a regular ice mountain or something, apparently somehow that this means that the gold door is more visible, and uh, it's been exposed. No one can get into it yet. But apparently it hasn't been used for years, and you actually see spider webbing around it, which makes me wonder, as I'm going over this, 
Um, it hasn't been used in years, but what about, you know, Supergirl? And what about Candor? Because if no one's been in there for years, does that mean that they're gone? I don't know at this point. We don't, I mean, basically we it's assumed that Candor is pretty self-sufficient just in the bottle. Otherwise, Superman would probably live in the fortress or have the bottle in his apartment, in his Clark Kent apartment. But um, so Supergirl's never used it. Supergirl's not around anywhere. Now, granted, what we knowing now, what we didn't know then, you know, she dies in the future. But Superwoman, I guess she would be at that point, should technically still be around because there's no mention of her dying. But I don't know. Maybe that's in part two. I actually have never read the story before. So um, for anyone that hasn't read it before, uh, we're going through this together, and I haven't read part two yet. I'm waiting. So, because I want to, you know, just go along with it. So I'm really looking forward to finding out if they explain that. Um, so we get back and looks, and it turns out Superman's current quote-unquote fortress is now a decaying tenement uh, that is marked for demolition. And he has to sneak in there because no one's supposed to be living in the abandoned houses. And for the first time that I can remember in a Superman book of this era, we actually see um, an area where there's, you know, cars are missing tires and are on blocks, missing doors, windows are crashed in, uh, the houses are totally dilapidated uh, with broken windows and everything so I mean you don't usually see it too much in this era usually Metropolis is shown as being pretty clean and perfect so this is pretty cool but there is a sign up that in that area the city of Metropolis will erect a model 100 story co-op apartment dwelling so um, guessing Clark's not planning on being able to live there now he gets inside of the building and he sees that uh, some other and some other tenants say that they're glad that, that he's back because they're so hungry. Now all you see, and we don't know how many people there are, we see four arms. They look like they belong to like only two different people because it's, it's two right hands and two left hands. And they're covered what looks in spots or sores or something. But this is all you see of them. And this is the only time they're really mentioned. So maybe they'll come back next issue. But um, Superman, since there's no heat or gas or electricity in the tenements, uh, Superman uses his heat vision to heat up the cans of soup because his heat vision is actually his vision powers uh, all seem to still be working okay. He still has his telescopic vision. That's how he looks at the for in on the fortress. Um, I don't know about X-ray vision, but obviously he still has his heat vision. So his, vi his vision powers are still working, but his physical powers aren't working anymore which is what I've noticed so far. And um, so he, after he feeds the people we don't see, uh, he uses some discarded chemicals he's found to try to come up with something to restore his powers. Now he comes up with a mixture that has the re kind of reaction he was hoping for and decides he's going to try it out. And in honor of the situation, he's going to put on his old Superman suit, uh, you know, because he hasn't worn it since, I guess, since he lost his powers. So he puts it on takes a drink and it does not work he is still he can barely stand he cannot fly still very weak and um, suddenly the remain some of the remaining mixture uh, explodes and splashes onto his civilian clothes which basically destroys them 
which means that Superman is now forced, because he has no other clothing, Superman is now forced to put on a blanket and wear a shawl and go out in public because the, and the only clothing he has is his Superman uniform. So he's got to try to hide it because he doesn't want anyone that Superman is now just a beggar. And he puts on some sunglasses to hide his face so he's not recognizable because, remember, this is, uh, this is the metropolis where a simple pair of glasses does that. And um, so he wheels along and finds himself in front of a department store where Lois, uh, the Lois, the Lois that we know, and her son Clark are exiting a department store. It looks like all you see are STACs, maybe like Stacy's, because I know they've used Stacy's in the DC universe before. But anyway, um, uh, she comes out and sees her husband and asks her for asks him to write a check for her because she wants to settle her charge account at the store. And we he turns around and we see that with some gray hair, this guy looks just like Clark Kent. Now we don't know how that's possible, but he is, I mean, he's got glasses, and he combs his hair back like Clark used to. So uh, so Superman's wondering if, if she figured out that he was Clark, so she married that guy because he looks like him. Um, but he figures it's just in the past, so better, left to, better to just forget it than worry about it. And as he crosses the street, he heads over to the Daily Planet, which is in quotes for some reason. Uh, but he heads over to the Daily Planet, Daily Planet, Daily Planet, because um, it is payday, so he could probably get some good money from there. So um, he heads over and finds out that the Daily Planet is now owned by a huge conglomerate, and uh, we find out that of course Perry White is dead, which is sad. But he was much older than the others, so the fact that they're getting old now, which would, you know, it's all logical. Uh, we see Jimmy come out, so. It just kind of makes you think that maybe the giant conglomerate that owns the Daily Planet now is called WMET-TV, which means that uh, Leo and Boltonoff have apparently not read uh, the issues of Jimmy Olsen and uh, Superman that have just come out because obviously GBS owns the Daily Planet, but maybe this the idea is that by the 1990s WMET will buy out WGBS or something, I don't know. But anyway, they come out and Jimmy donates a quarter to him, does not recognize him at all, and flips him a quarter. The quarter bounces out of Superman's cup and lands on the ground. Uh, now, that's a quarter, so that's quite a bit more than a dime that he got earlier in the issue, so he can't lose it and he needs all the money he can get. So Superman reaches down to get it. Now, doing this, unfortunately, causes the shaw he's wearing to loosen up and fall back, revealing the Superman costume he had on underneath. And of course, suddenly everyone recognizes him, and the blanket gets ripped off of him, and the sunglasses he's wearing gets taken off. And someone takes a picture, and he tries to run away, but he's being chased by all the people, and it's to be continued. So that's a it's a pretty interesting story. Um, it is an imaginary tale, which I'm not normally a huge fan of, but after finally reading this, I kind of like this one. It, uh, 
for one, it doesn't constantly try to remind us that it's an imaginary tale. Several of the ones that I have read, it's like every other caption. They're like, and on the next day, which may or may never ever happen. Um, you know, they, they keep mentioning that it's an imaginary tale because obviously people were stupid. And um, so we're going to move on from there. Um, the notes that I do have, um, the 90s, and it's, it's so sad to see because obviously we live in a time when the 90s were like 20 years ago, well, 10 to 20 years ago, depending on which part of the 90s. But um, the 90s are so futuristic. Um, the cars look futuristic. Uh, the buildings look futuristic, mostly on the cover. The issue itself, you don't really see too many of the background buildings looking you know, all that futuristic, they fewer details and stuff, but for the most part, they still look normal. Um, the ro bank robbers still wear the same um, kind of clothing with the little hats and the, with the little, uh, like the newspaper salesman hats and stuff, but, and all the fashion I'm noticing, the fashion that everyone's wearing is very heavily influenced by the late 60s, early 70s attire. It's very, uh, I guess we could say psychedelic. Which, you know, I know they did this a lot during those days. It's like the current fashion is going to look a little more futuristic, but still going to be basically based on what we're wearing now. And another proof that it's from the early 70s, late 60s, everyone's got hair that's a lot longer. And all of the guys have these sideburns that go halfway down their face and they're really thick. Um, Superman's grown his hair out. And I don't know how much of that is just because of his powers or what, but I mean, he's got extreme I mean he could probably go for a haircut looking at this um, Jimmy's hair is really long um, but yeah the clothing in fact the girl that Jimmy is seen with on page 12 wow her pants are really psychedelic and bell bottoms and the shirt is weird with a funny looking tie but it's an orange shirt with a vest and the belt I mean it looks something that you would see in, the, in this time period in well in the actual 60s, 70s time, time period, and the jackets and the men are all, most of the men are wearing hats and stuff. So, but, um, so you do have that. Um, let's see, where else are my notes? Uh, I do no did notice that all the women that you see are wearing some kind of headband. Lois and all the other women that you see have some kind of headband on. They're not wearing hats, but it's some kind of hat. Some kind of headband, which is an interesting thing. Um, now, Jimmy looks like he might be a bit of a player since he's one of the executive guys. But um, when they're interviewing him at the beginning for that Where Are They Now show, Superman is, or Superman, Jimmy is hanging out with a blonde girl. At the end of the story, when he's leaving the Daily Planet, um, he's walking out with a brunette girl. And Obviously, they're not meant to be the same person because the hair is obviously drawn differently. So it leads me to believe that Jimmy becomes a bit of a player in his old age. Um, but we do notice that uh, Jimmy is also getting some gray hair around the temples, not as much as Superman has, but he is getting it. And um, then, of course, there's my note about the fact that it looks like WMET owns the planet instead of GBS. Um, also, there was... Um, on page, let me go back up to the beginning here. Uh, on page number nine of this story, um, in addition to the sign that says that the 
place is going to be demolished and that the city of Metropolis will build a, an apartment complex. There's two other signs, which I thought were kind of like Easter eggs. One is uh, for Anderson Shows, and of course, Murphy Anderson, the inker, and Swan Real Estate, which of course, Kurt Swan, the penciler. So that's pretty cool. And I actually noticed it, which is something that doesn't happen too often. And um, then, of course, that's the end of the first story. Then, of course, there's the backup feature um, called Tales of the Fortress. I don't, there's nothing I could find that actually said whether or not this is the first installment of Tales of the Fortress or not. Uh, it's the first uh, one we've seen since I started reviewing Superman in the Bronze Age, other than, you know, the one from last issue, so never mind. Forget if I said anything. Um, this one is called The Invaders from Nowhere, and it's written by Jeff Brown, uh, Kurt Swan, and Murphy Anderson were the artists. And of course, it was also edited by Murray Boltonoff. And uh, what we have here is um, so, um, this, of course, takes place in the present day, so this is a, re a real story. So Superman, of course, has his powers back, so that's one of the things you got to remember when you start the story. But there's um, security alarms are going off all over the place inside the fortress, and Superman has to head to the fortress to investigate. Uh, the door's jammed, so he has to pry the his giant steel door off of its moorings or whatever. And um, he heads in, checks it out. In the super weapons area, nothing's missing. The communications room is undisturbed. There's a Kryptonian or Krypton memorial room with its model of a Kryptonian solar system that's untouched. And I do note on this page that there is um, a footnote to tell you that Superman's from Krypton, in case you don't know. Um, and he finds, he continues through the fortress and discovers these beings that identify themselves as seekers from the planet Kran. He, uh, they are sent to bring back, they were sent to Earth to bring back the most advanced life form on Earth, which, of course, is Superman. Uh, Superman doesn't want to be taken away like some zoo specimen, even though he's got a zoo. Uh, so he goes on the offensive, but they are immaterial. He, every time he tries to punch one of them, his, he just goes right through them. But then they shoot him with something called a Dormite Ray, which knocks Superman out. And they load him up on their ship and take him back to Kran, with, or Kran which we see is under a red sun. When Superman comes to, he's in a cage of energy reflectors. And he decides that he's not going to go down without a fight. He picks up a couple rocks and knocks them together. But when he does so, the, the rocks are bashed, indicating to him that he's actually got his superpowers even under a red sun. And he tries to break free because they show these images, these electronic images, or these electricity images of Superman, so he goes to fly at one of the energy reflectors to break free and just bounces off because it's reflecting his powers back at him. And as he continues to do this, the Seekers revealed to the audience, because they would obviously know this and don't need to mention it out loud to, the, to each other, that what they're doing is um, siphoning off Superman's energy while he's doing this to reheat the, their planetary core. And I don't know why they couldn't just ask Superman. I would think some heat vision would probably fix that up somewhat quickly, but otherwise we wouldn't have a story, I guess. So Superman keeps doing, keeps fighting, eventually gets tired, and um, all of a sudden he collapses. They turn uh, the Seeker people, they're the Cranians, I guess we could call them, 
um, go down, they turn off the energy reflectors and go down to check on him, and it looks like he's dead. He's not breathing, and he has no heartbeat. Um, but once they get down there and do this, Superman, of course, comes back to life, and thinking to himself, of course, that they don't realize that he can simulate his death using his superpowers, because back in those days, he had complete control of, over all everything in his system, and he could stop his heart and breathing and everything. And um, he escapes. He flies off, realizes that he is weaker because they took some of his powers, and finds the ship that he was brought to Cran, to Cran in, is able to find the programming tape that he needs to get back to his fortress, which is conveniently labeled in English, programming tape, return trip to Superman's fortress. Which I wouldn't think they'd call it a return trip to Superman's fortress because obviously if they've been there before, they could just call it the trip to, or, you know, to Superman's fortress and they just use it again, but whatever. Um, unfortunately, back on Cran, we see that the energy that they've absorbed is actually causing a chain reaction in the planet's core, which is causing the ultimate effect, which is the thing they dreaded the most. Now, we follow Superman as he's getting away and for some reason, it looks like he's flying towards the giant red sun, and he gets scared because red sun, of course, could kill him. And um, they're in the sun, but the sun's heat isn't incinerating the craft. In fact, he feels himself growing. And, it, and then, of course, the ship lands in the middle of the fortress. And he turns out that he's put two and two together, and it turns out that we learn that Cran isn't a planet out in space, but is actually a small microscopic planet that was accidentally attracted in orbit with the model solar system that Superman has in the fortress of Krypton's, of the Krypton solar system. I don't know how that works, but yeah but um what we learned is that um while superman was bringing the the this artificial solar system to the fortress a solar system which of course was given by to him by the members of the justice league uh somehow this planet cran was attracted to it now it's microscopic and um so superman didn't even know it was there and somehow these cranians had monitored Superman for years and knew that he would be able to help them. However, I do want to point out that if they had monitored him, monitored him, they would have known that he was a good guy, quote unquote, good guy. And therefore, they would have known that they could have just asked him for help and that he has this thing called heat vision, which more than likely uh, a good blast of heat vision could have probably, you know, taking care of the whole problem without them trying to siphon off his energy and causing the planet to explode. Which I just gave away, but the planet explodes. Suddenly the, sh the, ship, the ship disappears and there's a small pouf. And using a electronic super scope, which actually amplifies his microscopic vision to the nth degree, he sees that Cran is just a bunch of rocks floating in space now. But um, unfortunately, we um, oh we also learned that the reason that the red sun didn't work was because, of course, since it's artificial, that red sun is fake. So his powers still work because he's actually still under the Earth's yellow sun. 
is how that works. And of course, Superman is sad because these these were the most brilliant scientists that he knew, not I guess counting Krypton. And the world will never know their secrets. But the way I see it is not only will the world never know their secrets, but knowing Superman, wouldn't he be more interested in the universe knowing their secrets? But um, I'm just I'm new. I don't know. Um, notes I have of uh, the art still looks fantastic. I don't care what anyone says about Swan or Anderson. I like their art, and it looks good here. And uh, since there's not, I mean, there's as many people as there should be during different spots. Uh, but what I didn't like um, is that Superman gets very physical and acts kind of dumb in this story. Now, he's been doing this for years since he was a kid. I have read several Superman stories from the Silver Age, Golden Age, no, Golden Age doesn't count because that's not this Superman, but from the Silver Age and later on in the Bronze Age. Superman, even though he has all these powers, he's generally a think first, act later. He would be more apt to try to talk it, talk it over, see what they want, and that kind of thing, before, instead of just flying off the handle and trying to attack them. Granted, I can see the story purpose. One, we're very limited on pages. And two, it does show that they have a great amount of, um, you know, intelligence to be able to make themselves, in, you know, immaterial so that he can't hit them. But Superman does not, this Superman does not go for the brutality angle. Second, at first we see Superman just trying to slam his way out of there. Now granted, there's spaces open. You can see it because they're watching him without really needing anything. There are plenty of spaces of now there might be a dome, but I can't tell because it's never drawn very no, that's not a dome, that's just the stuff holding the top part. He had he could have flown out of there, it looks like, based on the art, but he never does. He just keeps slamming into the wall, number one. Number two, he keeps slamming into the walls. Now this is later explained by the fact that his super hearing was still working, so he was able to explain the expositionary dialogue given by the Cranians when they were telling why they were taking his power and siphoning it off. So I guess now if you go by that and if he knew why they were doing it, maybe that's why he kept slamming into the walls because he wanted to help them. But it just makes Superman look really stupid and his thought balloons don't let us know that He's just doing this to try to help them. But then, of course, there wouldn't be the drama that way. Anyway, and then we saw, we find out that they didn't do it right or something, and the planet blows up, so it ends up being pointless. If they had just asked them, they probably could have had more control over what they needed and could have done it slower so that their planet didn't blow up, but then you wouldn't have the tragedy, which helps these kinds of stories. Um, however, even though... He, they knew, or mm -hmm. now even if he knew why they were taking his power and was trying to help them, he sure got out of there in a hurry. I would imagine he didn't know that the planet was going to blow up, but I would imagine that he, the Superman that I've read and the Superman that I like to think I know from the Bronze Age, in a normal situation. When they were in the fortress, he would have tried to talk about talk it out. Even in this, if he found once he found out what they needed, he would have stopped and said, "Look, I can help you, but we can work together on this," or something like that, where they where he would have been able to 
work with them to figure out a safe way to reheat the core of their planet and let him leave peacefully. But no, he goes through this whole thing where he's slamming into these walls, giving them the power they need, and then works his, at his fastest to try to get out of there as fast as he can. That's not the Superman that I know. It's just not. I don't know. Maybe I'm not reading the right Superman, but that's not the Superman that I... Even the post-Crisis Superman would... I mean, the post-Crisis Superman, which... And I, I say even the post-Crisis Superman like it's a, like he's like not, the good, like not a good Superman or something. And I'm sorry. He is. I'm not meaning it that way at all. But the post-Crisis Superman would have, talked his, would have tried to talk out of it first. It's something that we later learn. Um, I know that there was an issue of the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern where he meets Captain Marvel. And instead of going in fists and feet flying, Captain Marvel tries to talk through the ordeal because you don't always have to use your fists. You don't think with your fists. You think with your brain. This is the, what I, well, this is the kind of situation I'm talking about. He could have talked to these people and found a better way to take care of this if he had heard it with the super hearing like he says and he tried to escape and just leave without caring now if he didn't know what was going on no even then he would have found out what was going on this is just not a very well written story the art looks great but the story is not very good so we're just gonna leave it at that um, I would also like to note, um, after the, at the end of the story, well, at least in my copy, but at the end of the story, um, we have a text page titled Revealing a Trio of Super Identities, or Secret Identities. Revealing a Trio of Secret Identities. And like last issue where they talked about Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, this issue they talk about the other three, and I'm saying, and uh, let's quote three, people who have also been working on action since Murray Boltonoff took over the book. And I'm not miscounting because we found, we find out, and I was all set to review this, um, to reveal this because I had read it in uh, the Kryptonite or Krypton Chronicles and thought it was really cool, but it turns out they reveal it here. Uh, Leo Dorfman and Jeff Brown are actually the same person. So the person that writes the front story, or the main story, and the person that writes the backup is actually one person. It is Leo Dorfman. Um, now, why he does goes with two names? Uh, apparently, this is uh, because of his prodigious output. He resorts to a pseudonym, and apparently, which I guess that means that he puts out a lot, so he does. He wants to make sure he gets paid for it all correctly. I don't know why he does it, but. Um, the name Jeff is his son's name, and the name Brown is his wife's maiden name. So that's how he did that. And um, so his, he has a son named G Jeff Dorfman and a wife named, well, I don't know her first name, but her last name used to be Brown. So Jeff Brown and Leah Dorfman, same guys. And uh, we also get some information about Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito. And I'm not going to go into that because I didn't go into the Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson stuff either, but I just thought I'd point out that that's in there. And uh, their little mini biographies, so you can catch up on what they've been doing up to the point where it's 1970. And uh, then, of course, we have the letters page. Now, I'm pretty sure that this is the wrong guy because I've always known him as Keith Giffen, 
but I think it's kind of weird that there is an issue where the guy um, has a one of the letter writers. Granted, he's from Mobile, Alabama, and I don't know where he's from, where Keith Giffen is from. But this letter writer's name is Keith Griffin, and while he has some fun with, uh, while he thinks that the Superman story in there was pretty good, uh, the issue he's talking about, which apparently is 392, uh, and in, I don't know, I, I haven't read this issue, but I do know that the backup feature was, um, this was from a time period where Legion of Superheroes was one of the backup features was the backup feature in action. And most of his letter actually talks about a problem he had with something in the Legion story. So I just thought it was kind of interesting that Keith Griffin, whose name is very close to Keith Giffen, um, has a lot to say about the Legion of Superheroes story when Keith Giffen becomes really famous for his work on uh, Legion of Superheroes about 15 years from this where this is written so um, that's it next up is elsewhere in the DC we'll call it multiverse I hope that the guys from Tales of the JSA don't mind that I'm taking that title but um uh, we're gonna uh, looking at the other issues now like I said these issues came out in November of 1970 so we're gonna see what else happened in November 1970 we've got uh, Aquaman number 55 um, there uh, we see Aquaman shrinking and uncontrollably because he's trying to get help, and um, that's a Nick Cardi co a Nick Cardi cover, and it actually looks pretty cool. And he's super, uh, Superman. Aquaman's actually being shrunk and is being pulled into a ring, which we see on the ground. So that's pretty interesting. That's Aquaman number fifty-five. Um, we get uh, our Army at War, starring Sergeant Rock, number two twenty-seven. Uh, Tomahawk number 132. It looks like a pretty cool cover. It's also, it's drawn by Joe Kubert. And um, this is back when um, they could talk about Indians a little more freely than they do now. Um, All New Wonder Woman number 192. We see it in a story called Assault on Castle Skull. We see uh, Wonder Woman fighting against another Amazonian type woman. We see a guy in the background and I'm not sure who he is again I'm not familiar with this era of Wonder Woman but he, he's got um, he's basically chained up he's walking around but he's chained with a large branch keeping his arms apart so he can't do anything but he's chained to that Wonder Woman is in some kind of armor not her normal Wonder Woman outfit but all white armor because you know she wears all white in this era but um her armors in tatters her helmet is gone and her shield is gone and her sword is broken and she's about looks like she's about to get stabbed by the other woman that's fighting her who has a much more colorful outfit and her armor looks to be in perfect shape as does the shield she's still carrying and the long crooked looking sword that she has so that looks pretty interesting and uh, we have DC special number 10 which is called stop you can't break the law or sorry stop you can't beat the law and this is a soup a 64 page DC special for only 25 cents with several different stories and uh, looks like several different stories are reprinted in it and it's got a very moody looking uh, Nick Cardi cover um, we've got a cop pointing at us he's drawing his gun he's got his hand 
uh, at us. We see another guy, another person, assuming it's a guy based on the shoes, laying on the ground, and it looks like it's raining to beat the band, as they say. The ground is soaked and it's just pouring. So that looks pretty cool. Uh, there's a book called Falling in Love, number 120, which means that they actually got 120 issues of this book. Now, yeah, it does look like a Nick Cardi cover, and um, it, it's got a woman getting upset at a guy because of the fact that he seems to like her more, uh, more of a pity love than an actual love, and it's a woman in a wheelchair that she's talking about, and the woman in the wheelchair is all kinds of upset. Um, Superman thirty one, uh, Superman two thirty three. Of course, we have Batman two twenty eight, which is a reprint issue, uh, and you can tell this because for one, it's a it's a DC giant uh, for twenty five cents, and in a, although they while they have Batman and Robin standing in the middle, uh, we do have small images of them of them from different stories around the side, and there's according to this, there's one, two, three, four, five, six different stories reprinted in this issue. Um, and it's got a pretty interesting Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson cover. Now, I'm going to say this. While I do like Kurt Swan on Superman, and I even like him in the 90, or late 80s, early 90s when he works on, does work on Aquaman, um, once, um, I've not really been a fan of his Batman. His Batman and Robin, they look, okay. I think his Batman and Robin looked really good when they were still doing the old school type of thing where the with the Bob King, you know, the chiseled, thick spring kind of chin and everything. When they were still having to draw like that, I thought Kurt Swan did a good job. Um, and even after when they went to the new look and everything, I thought his version of Robin was good. But his Batman does not look any scarier than... Um, I mean, he do, it doesn't have the mood, I guess is what I'm saying, but I'm not a fan of his Batman at all. Uh, we have House of Mystery 190, which looks like, yep, it's a Neil Adams cover. And um, that's a very moody cover. That looks really cool. We got some kids look like they're hiding uh, behind some tombstones from a witch flying by on a broomstick. And there's a lot of clouds, and there's a house in the darkness, and that one girl's turning around because there's another witch behind them, so that's pretty cool. Uh, we have our fighting forces starting the starring the losers. Uh, Young Love, number 84. Uh, Adventures of Jerry Lewis, 122, which, um, while I'm betting he's not actually in it, uh, the cover does show Jerry Lewis hiding out on top of a totem pole trying to hide from some aliens and most of them don't see him but he's on top and looking at the cover uh, this totem pole has uh, the head of the Frankenstein monster at the bottom a bust of Superman and above that it looks like President Lyndon Johnson maybe it's supposed to be Nixon I'm not sure but Jerry Lewis of course is hiding on top and his let me just say it this way. His butt is sticking way out because of the way he's uh, sitting or holding on on the top of the statue or the totem pole. And we do see an Indian behind the statue with an arrow, a bow and arrow. And he's got the thing, the uh, quiver or the, yeah, the, I don't know the technical names, but he's got it drawn back and he's pointing it straight at his butt. 
and these Indians are the typical Indians that you see in the old days where they are in a teepee and they've all got feathers and they've all got bow and arrows and quivers and all that stuff. Or if they don't have that, they have like tomahawks. But so that's interesting. I did not realize they were still doing Adventures of Jerry Lewis into the 70s. Um, Girls in Love, which has uh, the the story on the cover has something to do with a nurse and doctor. It looks like there's Strange Adventures number 228, which has another sev which is another one that looks like it reprints several stories, um, or it might actually be all new stories. I'm not sure. Uh, Julie Schwartz again. It, or Julie Schwartz again. Julie is Julie Schwartz is the editor on this, and the new cover is drawn by Neil Adams, featuring uh, the day the Earth was split in two. Uh, this is another 64-page giant uh, for 25 cents. Uh, Lois Lane or Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 107, uh, featuring the story of the snow-swept woman, and it does have a rose and thorn shocker at the end of it. Or as the backup feature, and it's got a pretty good Dick Giordano cover. Uh, there's Date with Debbie number thirteen, Hot Wheels number six, Phantom Stranger number eleven, which looks like a pretty cool cover. We it's a Neil Adams cover, so it makes sense. But we have a woman, um, and there's a she's in front of this dark area and this darkness. Uh, there's a you see somewhat of a face and a rocky looks like the thing's arm reaching out and grabbing her and trying looks like it's trying to pull her away and outside you see what look to be statues of some oriental guys and you see the shadow of the phantom stranger but this shadow does have the white eyes it's a typical thing like you see on Batman but this time they've got it on the phantom stranger it looks like a really cool cover uh, Teen Titans number 31 and uh, for some reason, uh, two of the Teen Titans, Kid Flash and Wonder Girl, are at some kind of protest. And for some reason, okay, Kid Flash and Wonder Girl are at some kind of protest. And they, these protesters are actually trying to beat up the Titans. And you only see the two of them. Wonder Girl is for some reason slumped on these steps and can't get up and Flash is being held back and can't fight them and they're just this one guy's just punching the crud out of them but um, that's that's a cover by Nick Carty and it looks pretty cool it, you know, it makes me want to check it out there's the Three Mouseketeers which is a very cartoony looking book um, there's Secret Hearts another romance book which judging from the cover it looks like we have a girl and a guy making out, and another girl comes in, and apparently the guy's not supposed to be kissing the blonde. We'll just put it that way. We have Superman one seven or Superboy, I'm sorry, one seventy one, which has a Superboy meeting. Apparently, has a meeting with Aqua Boy, which, judging by the outfit he's wearing, is Aquaman as a kid. A uh, story called Dark Stranger of the Seas. And that looks pretty cool. Uh, we see some weird-looking costumed fishermen uh, pulling them up out of the water. It looks It's a very dramatic cover. I like that. Uh, let's see. We have uh, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, number 135, which looks really cool. It's called The Evil Factory. It's got an awesome-looking Neil Adams cover 
uh, the color on this thing. Now, I don't know if it's just the uh, scan that I'm looking at. And I am at Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, by the way, at www.dcindexes.com. And I don't know if it's just the scan he's got, but the coloring on this looks awesome. This looks like a really cool cover with Superman being attacked by a bunch of small Supermen, mini Supermen. And uh, Jimmy's the one pulling the lever, at, uh, sending them to attack him. And uh, if you want to know more about that story, I'd, I'd suggest going over to a to Superman homepage and check out their back issue reviews. Um, there's this guy that reviews the Jimmy Olsen books. His name's um, Charlie something. And um, he's been reviewing the Kirby era of the Jimmy Olsen books. And I do know for a fact, because it is me, that um, I just turned in uh, the, issue, uh, the cover, the review for 147. It hasn't been posted yet. And then I've got uh, one more issue of that run to cover. And then I'll be done with the Kirby era. And then I'm going to be moving on to something else. But um, that's a pretty good story. I suggest um, if you're into it, uh, since I'm not reviewing it on this podcast, I would definitely suggest you check out that review. Uh, we have the Action Comics cover. So when we run over that, we have Supergirl in Adventure Comics. Um, I'm sorry, the new Supergirl. And for some reason, we have Supergirl frightened by a mouse. And I'm not sure who these people are on the cover. It looks like a guy and a, or a man and a woman. Uh, the woman is standing there with her hands on her hips, quite triumphant. And the guy is in a suit, but he looks like he, now I'm not saying it is, but he looks like he could be Lex Luthor. Although by the outfit he's wearing, because it's a suit, it looks more like the post-crisis Lex Luthor, but he looks like Lex Luthor. But we have Supergirl, looks like she's in some kind of a glass cage, and one of her weirder outfits where she's got the skirt that barely covers past her, um, yeah, that feminine area, uh, with a weird kind of belt that's just, you know, circles on a chain. We have the boots that go up to just about her skirt, and gloves that go almost up to her elbow, and a weird looking cape. So. That's a weird looking outfit, but we do have her in there. Uh, Detective Comics, uh, starring Batman and Batgirl. And I believe this is the, during the time where Batgirl was a backup feature. And this, uh, I'm judging by the title of one of our landmarks is missing. I'm guessing this is when she is um, either a congresswoman or getting ready to become a congresswoman in D.C., so that's pretty cool. But um. The cover features Man-Bat running off with um, a bride, and Batman's following along. It's a Neil Adams cover, and it says it's the bride of Man-Bat, and I know the title is Marriage Impossible, so obviously this is one. This has to be, and I'm going to double-check it, but I'm pretty sure this is one of those Frank Robbins, Neil Adams stories, and it in fact is. Um, so that's a pretty good. It's actually a pretty good story. I suggest reading that one, too, if you can. Uh, there's DC Supergiant S21, uh, which is just called Love. And this looks like a really psychedelic cover. Um, very expressionistic. The artist name is Charlie Armentino, who I have not heard of before. But this is some pretty interesting artwork. It features every... We've got a, a crying woman. We've got her hair melting into these the into a race car driving along. We've got people making out. We've got 
multicolored bubbles, I guess they are, in the background. It's pretty cool, but there's about, let's see, there is a one, two, three, technically four stories in here because three of the, three of the stories are actually three parts of one story. And um, this is another one of those 64-page giants for 25 bucks, so that's pretty cool. But that is S Giant S21. And then, of course, the final book for that month is Girls Romances, number 154. And next month, let me make sure we have all these before I go and tell you what we're covering. All right. Next month, we will have World's Finest, number 200, Superman 234, and Action 397. And, again, I would like to thank... Um, uh, Garrick McKnighter and J. David Weeder for the great reviews on iTunes. I would like to thank Michael Bradley for his email. Um, I would like to list, I would like to thank all of you for listening to the show. Um, according to the stats that I have, I've been getting quite a few uh, listeners, and I thank you for that. Again, make sure you check out the uh, Superman Podcast Network at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash supermanpodcastnetwork. And... Um, but um, thank you, everybody. I hope you all have a great um, week, and um, see you next time. Thank you for listening to Superman in the Bronze Age, hosted by Charlie Niemeyer. You can write to the show at umbc81 at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show two ways, via the RSS feed at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com or via iTunes. Also, if you like this show, make sure you check out the blogs and podcasts listed in the recommended sites section, and be sure to check out my reviews of other classic Superman comics at www.supermanhomepage.com. Superman and all related characters are copyright DC Comics. Also, any images or music used for this blog or podcast is purely for entertainment only. I do not make any money from this show. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.